0: what is a cap rate or CapEx or IRR? If you don't know what they are, that's okay. Because today's show basically is the ultimate guide to multifamily investing.
1: Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman.
0: What's up, everyone? Really excited to come with you with today's show because this show, while it's a little bit longer is action packed with such amazing content. I think you guys are gonna absolutely love it. So I'm talking with two of the partners from Enzo Multifamily, uh, Suppen Talati and Vina Jetty. And we get into the details from a high level. We start at you know what we're looking at in terms of what is multifamily, what do we mean? All the way down to how do they analyze deals, And how do they find deals and vet markets? And what does the financing structure look like on the back end? This is really like the ultimate guide to multifamily investing. They did an amazing job. It was such a pleasure to talk with these two. I do want to give a little bit more disclosure and disclaimer for this type of show. So understand that everything here is educational in nature. Everything is hypothetical. Please consult your attorney, your CPA, your financial advisor, hopefully a fee only financial advisor, before acting on anything. Please understand that the numbers here are all sample numbers, nothing is real, and there's no pitch to invest or to do anything like that. This is just really high quality information into an industry that is somewhat tough to get into if you're just starting out, especially if you're a physician, to do this type of stuff on your own is is very difficult and it's hard to get really accurate, live, great information. So these two share... All their knowledge. It's amazing. Let's jump right in and talk all about multifamily investing with the two partners from Inzo Multifamily. Vina, Sapon, it's so great to have you guys on the show. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having us.
3: Thanks for having us, Ryan.
0: Of course. So let's just jump right into it and talk about multifamily investing. So, what is multifamily investing?
2: Yeah, so that's like the million-dollar question. I um, was talking to a friend last night who's on my Facebook, and he was like, I keep seeing you say multifamily. Do you mean that multiple families get together and buy a piece of real estate? And so I was like, okay, that's great feedback. We should clarify. So when we say multifamily investing, we mean apartment complexes. So you'll see high rises in Manhattan, all the way to two story buildings in the Dallas area. uh, Multifamily is just a conglomerate of housing that is not individually owned like a condo would be. So we invest in multifamily. We like it as an asset class. And it's a little bit different than single family investing because you have, instead of buying one house or a portfolio of 10 houses, you're buying 150 units with one roof or two roofs. They're all sharing common areas.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. And then so for someone who doesn't really kind of speak the language and is in the details here, they're thinking, okay, Vina, an apartment complex is huge, 150 units, that's going to cost millions of dollars. How Mm -hmm. the heck would I be able to start investing in real estate? Or why would I start in kind of investing in real estate if it's going to cost millions of dollars to get into?
2: I mean, it's just pocket change. No, I'm kidding. Um, Yeah, hang out with you. (laughs) Yeah, I I wish. I wish it was pocket change. So what we really do and what a lot of people do to get involved in the way we got started in real estate investing on the multifamily side is through what's called a syndication. So a syndication is actually a lot like what I had said before, where groups of investors get together They say, okay, we're going to buy 123 Main Street and it's 150 doors and then we're going to split the profits of it and we're going to operate it together. And so essentially a syndication is bringing groups of individual investors together that maybe can only invest a smaller amount instead of $10 million, but you bring together enough of them and eventually you have enough equity to be able to take down that deal.
0: That makes sense. So if we're looking at just multifamily as an asset class, right? In a subclass within real estate, you know, why do you guys prefer multifamily over something like single family or uh, retail or office or industrial? Like why multifamily?
3: I like multifamily generally just from a, speaking from a risk adjusted return perspective, uh, just touching upon what Vina had mentioned, use a simple example. Let's say I have a duplex, which is just two units. If a tenant moves out, now I've got a 50% vacancy rate, whereas a multifamily, let's say I've got 100 units, uh, let's say a tenant leaves, I still have 99% occupancy. So I've still got that strong cash flow. There's significantly less risk associated with that. Also, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, Let's compare it to, say, the stock market or the bonds, because we haven't talked about that. A lot of our demographic, as far as our targeted investors and folks who are with us, are high net worth individuals. They're credit investors and they have large amounts of capital, disposable cash to achieve diversification. So if I'm looking at historically, uh, you can make that argument, say, cash under a mattress has, has risk. It's got currency devaluation risk, inflation risk, viability of the US dollar. But it's shown historically to have three to four times less risk than the stock market if we're specifically speaking to just risk and it's got the best sharp ratio. So, let's say who's investing in multifamily, uh, aside of just us, you've got triple A rated life insurance companies, which are some of the most conservative investors in the world. They're holding significant amounts of debt where they lend to folks like ourselves. They've also got equity into this. You've got commercial lenders who finance non recourse debt, that large LTV, which is loan to value. These LTVs are anywhere from 65 to 80%. Being non-recourse, they're essentially saying that the owners and managers, with exceptions to carve-outs, are not liable for the loan. Most folks can't even walk into a bank and get a $500,000 loan without having some type of collateral or let alone $100,000. Here, we're talking about 15, 16, $20 million loans. By looking at this, a lot of these lenders, insurance companies, and so on, they view this from a similar lens, that it's a relatively low-risk asset vehicle. And then we also like it because it offers tax shelter, it offers inflation protection, it offers cash flow, and it's asset-backed investment that's not necessarily denominated in paper currency.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of benefits, right? And we won't go into all of these, but because we'd be here for four hours, right? But, right
2: long time. <laughs>
0: but as you see, there's there's a lot of benefits. And some of them might have been a little too high level to kind of talk on. But there are still some downsides and some risks. Um, there's volatility, there's default, there's, you know, all sorts of things. So, Sapon, would you mind actually talking about just some of the risks associated with being an investor or kind of working in the multifamily space?
3: Yeah, like anything, right? There's risk. When we look at something, we look at we have to control the risk we can control. There, like you mentioned, there's volatility market risk. Those are risks that we can't control. But we try to mitigate as much of that as we can. And actually, we do a fairly good job of that, where we'll be in geographies that we foresee strong cash flow, uh, whether you're in a recessionary market or expansion. You know, we look for something where, as the, the business economics shift, are we able to still stay in the deal? Does it mean we're going to ride it through the recession? Are we going to look at an exit during the next expansion? Are we looking to do a you know, yield play versus a value add? We can talk all day about the value add and how that's becoming a lot tougher to find. So what is what are some of the shifting strategies around that? But if you look at it, even in, the, the recent run-up, like CMBS, those loans, they've had a default rate of about 2.08% since January, which is like near 20-year lows. Freddie Fannie, which we call agency debt, is less than 1%, still also near 20-year lows. But so these are lagging indicators. They're not leading indicators. That mm-hmm. could change you know, tomorrow. The point I'm trying to address is that the risk itself is really low in today's environment. That doesn't mean that tomorrow if we buy something that we're, we're buying it because there's very low risk. CapEx, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later today, that's the, uh, the capital uh, improvements you're putting into the property. Well, If your budget's undercapitalized, uh, you're not actually achieving the full potential of the property. That in itself can increase risk. There's a lot of ways of mitigating and managing risk, but you're never at absolute zero on the risk. Sorry
2: to interject real quick, but I think that really all of it can be boiled down to the biggest risk that you have in multifamily is not knowing your market and not knowing your asset class. For example, we would never go into a class C or class D property and put like engineered hardwood in the floors there because the ROI is just simply not there. Similarly, we would know the market area. For example, we've turned down a property recently where the one-mile radius of median incomes was around 40000 and we were trying to push rents up into the almost $2,000 a month range. And you just can't support that because you'll find nobody that qualifies on your rental application. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, knowing your market, I think is so important, knowing what other assets in the same area are doing also really important. And, you know, it takes a lot of time and diligence to get those factors. But Sapan, wouldn't you agree that that's kind of the big one that can be what makes or breaks the deal?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've gotten into best and final on some deals. Uh, we, we really like the numbers, you know, but again, it, it's just such a highly uh coveted market. We didn't want to pay a premium in certain markets. There's certain markets we we're okay with paying maybe a five percent premium because we see the demographics and we see core uh investment potential of what we can do with it. At the same time, I, I completely agree with you on that, Mina, with uh the geography. hmm
0: uh-huh. Well and as you're talking like so a couple of things. One is if you're willing to pay a five percent premium, like you're obviously looking at it and go, well, you because know, in multifamily you can almost control the income and, and what a property is worth. And I know we'll talk about cap rate in a little bit, but you know if you mm-hmm. improve the property, improve rents, decrease expenses, all of a sudden that building is worth, the whole building is worth mm-hmm. a whole lot more than, mm-hmm. than when you had purchased it. So even if you're paying a little bit extra, but you know real estate, you guys can obviously speak on it, is you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. So Absolutely. you have to make sure you buy the correct deal and, and everything like that.
3: Yeah, and I do want to clarify that. 5% premium or so would be on our numbers, not necessarily the the seller's numbers, because we're, we're forecasting out five, seven years in our model, and say comfortably, if it was two, three years ago, uh, we'd be okay with paying, say, 5 or 10% premium in, in the right market or submarket on, say, the seller or the list price. Uh, whereas in today's, uh, you know, we, we want to be careful because we're seeing a softening of the market that... We are pricing that into what we're looking at in our underwriting. Uh, you know, we are pricing vacancy in where we're looking at or anticipating increase in vacancy. Where we're looking at possibly the flattening, if not the drop in rent in certain submarkets. So we're we're taking those factors in, into account when we're doing our underwriting as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into some of the terminology. But, but Vini, you sure. said you know C and D properties. Uh, uh-huh. Can you just let people know like what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So when we look at assets, um, there's like four major categories that we subcategorize them into. So first one is an A, B, C, and the fourth surprise is a D. So pretty easy to follow delineation, but it's a little bit more subjective to kind of what your metrics are. But you will essentially categorize the properties based on location and the actual asset. So for example if you have a 2017 build with, you know, pools and gyms and dog parks in the middle of nowhere, I can't think of a middle of nowhere market <laughs> that I want to single out right at this moment, but in a middle of nowhere market where there's no job growth, there's a population of, you know, 50,000 people or less, but there's 200 units in that that's an A property according to the asset type, but not according to the location. Mm. Now, if you have that same property in Times Square, then you have an A lo- asset in an A location. A B asset is going to be a little bit more of a, like it's going to be your working demographic. It's going to be people that maybe have two incomes, maybe one or two small kids. Both parents are working. They're saving up for a house and This might be the last or almost last stop on their way out to buying a house. And you have your C assets, which are a little bit on the they tend to have a higher return than the A or B assets because they're a little bit on the riskier side. Mm-hmm. You might find a little bit more um, in terms of some higher crime rates. You might have a demographic where only one parent's working and they have kids or it might be a single mom. So it's just, it really is driven by the amenities of property offers along with The area. So you might have a C asset in an A location, which is a recent project we actually wanted to pursue. And we ended up going to Best and Final on it. And that was a C asset because it was a 1970s build. It needed tons of work on the roofing, they had roof leaks, um, but it was in an A location. It was in an area where developers are coming in, they're overpaying for the asset just to get the land. Mm -hmm. So They're taking the land, scraping everything and building uh, brand new dense housing. So those assets are, you know, we consider them C assets, but we know in an A location we can push them up to a B or possibly an A, depending on whether it's new development or repositioning of the existing asset. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's a value add that you're bringing in and looking at it makes total sense. So, so let's kind of recap here. So we've chatted on kind of what it is, what you're looking at, why it's good, why it's bad, you know, the pros and cons of, of this. And so let's say you guys raise some money from some investors, you found a deal. How do you fund a deal now? Let's kind of give the listeners kind of the, the other side of the story, how do you fund um, a deal
2: on the debt side? Yeah. So, um, the way we fund a deal And it's so frustrating because this is literally always the answer with almost Hmm. anything is it depends, (laughs) you know, it's not like going in and buying a single family home. And you'll hear me compare a lot to single family homes just because most people are used to the concept of how a single family home works, right? Mm -hmm. You go, you make an offer, they maybe counter, you go back and forth and eventually you agree on a price, you open escrow you pay your down payment, you get your bank financing in order. They put a mortgage on the house and you close and everybody hopefully walks away with a win, right? So mm-hmm. this operates in a completely different uh, life cycle than what a single family home does. But Once we have a deal under contract, we meet actually right before we get it under contract, we start the process of financing. So we have preferred lenders that we work with and we work with different lenders depending on the market that we're in. So for example, on multifamily, the agency debt is, is more dependent on the actual financials of the property versus the financials of the people buying the property, right? So when I bought my house to live in, the bank asked me for my personal financial statement, all my accounts, like my firstborn child, they asked me for everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so then when we go into a multifamily asset, they don't care about what my personal accounts are. They don't care about my credit score. They don't care about all of that. What they care about is What are the financials of the property and can the property operate in such a way that it can make money? So it's really like they're looking at it more as a business than a piece of real estate, right? What's the business plan here? Why do you think you can sell it? What's your experience to be able to operate this? So our resume matters way more than our financials as individuals. So, with that being said, one of the things that agency debt, so Fannie and Freddie loans on multifamily requires is that there is what's called the ninety ninety rule, right? So that's 90% plus occupancy for 90 days or longer. So they'll look at the historicals on what's called the T12, which is last 12 months of the operating ex- income and expenses. And so they'll look at that. If it meets the 90-90 rule, then we can qualify for agency debt or Fannie or Freddie debt. If it doesn't, we occasionally will have to put in place what's called mezz debt or bridge loans or some kind of short-term debt structure. So that means we come in and that would be comparable to, well, and nobody really does this, but comparable to buying your single family home with hard money and then getting the deal closed and then refining it out to agency debt as Fannie or Freddie loaned you don't really do that on a single family home that you're, well, you do it if you're investing into it, right? But you don't really do it for your primary home because it's really expensive to do that. But it's different on multifamily because the rates are much lower. And I know Spahn can probably speak way more to this than I can, but we can actually underwrite that in and it's not like a 12% rate, like you might save some hard money on a single family home.
0: Yeah. And Spawn, do you want to maybe jump in and talk about maybe some of the typical structuring that this debt looks like when you put a note on a piece of property?
3: Yeah. At a high level, if it's not necessarily stabilized, that's where we may work with CMBS, like Nina mentioned, or put in a bridge. There's a lot of options that go into that uh, when we're not going to agency debt, where we we try to avoid prepayment. Sometimes we'll do it where it's interest only for the first two years. So we can have what looks like better cash flow up front, you know, we may refi that into to agency as we finish our value add component to it. i um, just going to give you guys an example, put some context. We we just recently did a refinance two months ago and we returned 40% of the original uh, investor capital back to our investors. And they're still in the deal as if they had 100% of the original principal in the deal. So it's very attractive for an investor. You get a nice IRR bump, which is essentially your internal rate of return bump. And then there's other things I'm sure we'll talk about it's a bit about the tax shelter and and other aspects of it, which I like to call the non-realized gain, uh, until it becomes realized, and how that actually ties into, you know, in a in a down market, uh, as as you know, why we like multifamily when we're not necessarily in an expansionary phase, but why we also like in a downturn as well.
0: Yeah, and so you mentioned IR. So let's let's kind of stop here for a second and just talk maybe some terminology that would be helpful from a high level for listeners who are really getting exposed to this kind of concepts maybe the first or second time here. So, you know, you mentioned IRR. What is IRR?
3: Essentially the rate at which a project would break even. And so we use it somewhat in parallel with MPV, which is that present value. Uh, I haven't really seen many multifamily operators use that MPV. Typically, a lot of folks just send, tend to focus on IRR mm-hmm. and you know, what's the IRR that I'm getting on that. Really, it's projects cash flow that we uh, compare to our company or our individual's hurdle rate, which is basically what I need to see as the return on that particular investment. So the higher the IRR, the the better it is, right? But it's not necessarily just a straightforward calculation. As we each additional year, you tend to see that IRR go a little bit lower and lower and lower. Uh, A good example would be, let's say I have an IRR of 20% over a one-year period and 13% over a 10-year period, and if my hurdle rate, which is what I need to see, is 10% during that period, most folks would think, well, let me go with the higher IRR of 20% for just one year, whereas those who are well-versed in this would say, you know what, the IRR of 13% over 10 years is far more attractive, which mathematically it is, without getting into the formula and how it's calculated. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, spare everyone.
2: <laughs> I was I was just about to say you're so lucky that he said he wasn't going to get into that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, even Vina my eyes roll back and we start going crazy. So no, so we've got IRR right, and then I know some of the industry we talk about is the average annual return. Can you maybe talk the difference on maybe those two?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm gonna let Vina take that because she's been fielding a ton of questions uh, with Perfect. regards to the average annualized return, and we're seeing a lot more of that from some of our. Uh, I don't know what they're called, the, the folks who are in our syndications.
0: Okay.
2: Oh, great. He lets me talk about the numbers. Our numbers guy just booted it to me. All right. Um, So just go high level.
0: Just high level. Most people just don't need to know the concepts, right?
2: (laughs) I'm going to have to because I can't get much more detailed. No. Love it. I'm kidding. I know enough to be dangerous. So once it starts getting too in the weeds, I send them back to spawn to get down and dirty with the numbers. So, no, but from an investor standpoint, I'll kind of talk about what most investors ask us about. They want to know what the average annual return is. So typically on multifamily, the way you kind of, and actually on single family too, the way you see your return is, let's say you bought a house at $100,000, right? Mm -hmm. Then you pay it down, maybe you're getting... 5 10% cash flow every year which is great but then your house is appreciated by 50% and you sell it so you get another $50,000 on the sale right mm-hmm. the most of your money is made on the sale it's not actually made on the cash flow of the property now you know there's argument as to okay well do you count your personal home and your net worth calculations and all that. But for purposes of this, multifamily-wise, historically, we've seen high teens, low 20s as average returns over a five-year projected period. So for us, we almost always project out over five years on our projects, but it's very common to see three years, seven-year whole periods. There's various whole periods that other syndicators will use, all valid. We absolutely model for two-year, three-year, five-year, seven-year, 10-year, like we model for everything. So we know kind of what our worst case scenarios are so we can help mitigate that risk we were talking about earlier. But on an average five-year whole period, we used to be seeing 20% plus returns with no problem. Now, The market's shifting. Um, I've seen several syndications come across my desk where operators are doing like 13%, 15%, but it's in a really great asset and a really great market. So it varies, but we're definitely seeing that market kind of starting to turn. I would say even as recently as this year, it's been kind of starting to turn. So I think for today and looking forward into the immediate future, we're looking for more stability. Our game plan has changed a little bit from going for that home run to getting stability because we do anticipate a downturn in the market. And as we enter that correction, we want to make sure that we can withstand that because, well, we all remember what happened in 07 and 08.
0: Yeah. And you always want to know what is the worst possible outcome right? Absolutely. Before you, you buy anything, regardless of whatever kind of asset it is. And mm-hmm. this is a really yeah. a good case of make sure you understand what you're investing in before yep. you start investing the positives, the negatives, the risks, you know, the, it's not mm-hmm. all about the, the pie in the sky numbers of, um, you know, Hey, we're going to hit a, uh, you know, a 22% return or something like yeah. this, you know, make <laughs> sure, you, you know, what kind of risk you're taking to get mm-hmm. that kind of double digit return. I mean, we see, you know, my dad's a, a developer and you know, what we're mm-hmm. doing right now with some Gray shell buildings here in town, the investors that are coming in are wanting to see a 25% return. That makes sense because they're taking a ton of risk from a development standpoint. There's a lot of things that happen in development when you're just buying raw land and developing it that are very different, even from this, which is extremely different from just buying, you know, an SFR and calling it a day. Like the SFRs are, I think, the the gateway drug, the entry. Into <laughs> they the, really are. Into, <laughs> they right?
3: are the gateway
1: drug. And then as you start getting
0: further in, seeing. as your financial situation improves and your financial acumen improves, and you go mm-hmm. from being a novice to, you know, somewhat of an expert, you know, you're going to start seeking out higher yields, higher returns, but you're going to also yeah. realize that the higher the yield doesn't necessarily mean Fair it's safer. You're taking a risk and you're going to get rewarded for that. So
2: you're definitely not seeing 25, 30% returns in this market for multifamily. No, not, not for multi.
3: We definitely do. uh, We do a sensitivity analysis on side. We look at a lot of different scenarios uh, that we feel could be potential outcomes. We also look at multiple exit strategies Mm -hmm. uh, or exit scenarios, I should say. Talking about being mentioned, is it three years, five years, seven years? If there's an opportunity to get it to exit from three years, and we've got a good game plan in place for what that exit looks like, and then what we can do with the post exit. Then that's something we'll uh, absolutely consider. You know, right now we're very uh, cautious of look- looking at anything at three years, and we're really predicting for it to be around five year- or seven years in our model. Because of that, that area of comfortability, but the same thing that comes on the debt side. Right? We're not we're not taking any notes that are less than 10 years. We're doing 10, 12 year notes. So if we need that extra cushion to ride out, say, a rough period on a recession, we've got that ability there without having, uh, going back to that risk we talked about, unnecessary risk exposure, because now we're faced with a refi and maybe at some unfavorable rates. So we, we do take a look at a lot of that, you know, and I think, uh, I don't know if this is a good segue into some of the other benefits, like the tax shelter and other forms where, yeah, you know, if we were to look at a deal and say we're looking at 13%, 14%, you know, annualized return, uh, well, there's, There's other sides of it that you're getting a return on that you might not necessarily realize, and we haven't modeled into it where it's going to be shown on a piece of paper or on any presentation, but it's really that tax shelter component of it. For example, we just did a cost segregation, and for those folks who aren't aware of what that is, it's essentially a study that dissects the construction costs or purchase price of the property that would otherwise be depreciated over 27 and a half years, uh, which is known as the useful life of the building. Really, the goal is to identify any property-related costs, like CapEx, that we can now depreciate over five years, seven years, or 15 years. So it allows us to accelerate depreciation. So, you know, maybe take an example of last year, we, we picked up a property for 2017 distributions, and, you know, we had exceeded a little over 16,000% on the depreciation relative to your distribution. So our shareholders were, were thrilled about that because they had a large, fairly large negative K1, where now, you've got some form of a, a write-off. Uh, you know, again, we're not CPAs or accountants, so oh. <laughs> I would certainly advise you talk to your CV how that can be applied. But you know, for anyone that's structured their investment on their end on the personal side in such a manner that they can take advantage of that, that's huge. So if you want to take that as some form of your return along with we do monthly distributions for all of our passives. Uh, and so you combine that with how, what you got for the year, you've definitely come out pretty far ahead.
0: Yeah, I love it, and and that was a good little segue. I appreciate you, uh, you kind of jumping into it. There,
3: there's a He's couple things. Over you... Your
2: job?
0: Oh, it's all good. Hey, I don't. Mind. I'll just sit here. You guys chat. What, what am I doing? Right?
2: <laughs> oh, it's all
0: good. So I I do want to go back though, because you guys have mentioned a couple things that I still think mm-hmm. need to be mentioned for people who again are hearing this maybe for the first or few mm-hmm. times here. We did talk about capex, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you guys even just mention what is capex? And kind of how do you estimate it and just give a a high level on?
2: Um, Yeah, so CapEx is your capital expenditures. So that is what improvements are you putting into the property? And CapEx is really gonna apply to almost any real estate that you're investing money into to bring it up to market standards. So when we look at a CapEx budget, for example, if we have a B or C quality asset in an A location, we might look at the market and say, okay, Uh, we need to add package delivery center, you know, where you can go and enter your code and pick up your packages instead of getting it delivered to the door. So we'll look at that and we'll say, okay, this costs roughly about $12 per user per box or whatever. Can we charge $25 for that a month? So what we'll do is we'll play with different models of where we can really push the NOI or the net operating income of the building. So for example, a dog park, is it going to cost us 15 grand to do that? Carports, is that going to cost us 30 grand to put in carports, but we can get $35 a month for those? So we run various different models with various price points of where we think we can realistically push the rent based on what the capital expenditure is. Now, there are going to be some things like your deferred maintenance where The previous owner just hasn't taken care of certain problems or addressed certain problems that needed to be addressed. Roofs are a big one. We see Mm -hmm. ACs, uh, boiler or chiller units if they have them depending on the age of the building. Parking lots are a big one. So you just want to be aware of whatever money you're going to have to put into the property because you have a leaking roof. You have to replace the roof. How much does that cost you? Is it going to be a $100,000 roof or a $500,000 expense? I mean, and those are really important to know because that can make or break your business plan. So I would say when you go into a property, if you're looking at a multifamily, you would look at it the same way you're looking at a single family home in the sense of you're going to want an inspection or you want to walk it with a contractor and or property management so that you can see, okay, what do we need to do to bring this up to market level if we put purple paint on the walls. Is it going to get us an extra $10 in rent? If we charge for a pool view, can we get an extra $10 or are we going to start seeing vacancy go up? So different nuances of the local market. We rely on property management. We also rely on our contractors to help us narrow down what our true costs are so that we can underwrite it. And so I would say for us, what we do is once we're heading into a best and final round, we start tightening up our numbers. So our initial pass at underwriting is very detail-oriented, but it's not so detail-oriented that I know that we're spending $268,000 on a roof. We might put in $300,000 or $315,000, and then we adjust those numbers going into best and final And we see, oh, okay, we have an extra $100,000 we can go up here. Let's come up on our purchase price by $100,000. So we start tightening up numbers once we have a good idea that we're getting into that best and final round. We start spending time with contractors, engineers, specialists. If there's foundation issues, we'll start bringing in foundation repair companies to see what that looks like. Any cost that we can foresee, we absolutely put it into our budget. Any cost that we can't foresee we try to increase it. And we like to be conservative. So we always overestimate what our expenses are. And we underestimate what our income is.
0: Yeah, and I, I appreciate all the kind of the behind the scenes that you guys are kind of giving uh, all of us here, because most people don't have the, let's say connection or the ability to talk to people that do this all day every day that know their stuff, and mm-hmm. are willing to share kind of the process flow and what's going on. And how you look at things and what you're kind of analyzing. And you know, this is a, I, th- I think a really good learning experience for everyone. They, they might not be investing in multifamily themselves. They might at some point invest in it, you know, as an investor or the debt side or whatever it might be. But I think this is a, a really good learning experience for everyone to hear kind of the behind the scenes on it. So I, I really appreciate you guys going into good. a lot of detail on that and kind of speaking on process flow. Walk me through like the acquisition process.
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll feel that one since I have been kind of heavy on acquisitions recently. So, well, first of all, to address your comment before we appreciate you having us on the show because we can totally geek out talking about yeah. real estate all day long. <laughs> so you'll have to probably like cut us off at some point. But I actually agree with you. I think a lot of syndicators or a lot of investors don't like to share what their process is, but I think that's such a disservice to the industry because How are people supposed to learn this? We didn't start off knowing all this. I had the good fortune of having a family that's been investing in real estate for like 35 years. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to be open with this knowledge and share it because when other operators operate well, it actually benefits us as well. So, we are very interested in having colleagues that we can refer to, especially if there's an investor looking for a specific asset that maybe it's not in our wheelhouse, but hey, you know, Susie Smith over here, she does a great job with this. Let me pass you on. And so it's important to us that other people are well-versed and really good at what they do as well so that the industry keeps thriving because it benefits all of us. So with that being said, you asked me another question and I totally lost track of it because I went No, on it's all
0: good. And it's funny. So we'll stay with that for a second, right? Because that's kind of my belief and this is why I wanted to have you guys on You know, for the finance industry everyone's been sold on this like black box concept, right? For years and years and years. Think about like our parents age and everything. Right. And now like Google exists and a lot of the stuff in financial planning isn't rocket science. Like it, mm-hmm. it really isn't. It takes some time and dedication and some desire to want to learn some of this stuff, but a good majority of it can be learned through a DIY type approach. And the more that I kind of give out to people, I'm hoping that it helps educate them, take control over their finances to kind of weed out potentially the bad in the mm-hmm. industry that still exists. And I think yeah. my industry is plagued with terrible people, unfortunately. <laughs> um, the the multifamily space or even just real estate in general has mm-hmm. some bad apples, but I think it's significantly less because deal mm-hmm. flow will stop coming to them. Banks will stop lending. They'll stop mm-hmm. having partners. Like their reputation is significantly on the line Every time you do a deal, every time you pass a lead on. So I just wanted to kind of touch on that. The question I did ask you, though, was to (laughs) was to, to walk me through the acquisition process from like a high level. What does that even look like?
2: That's right. Okay. yes. So acquisition process. So I'm going to talk about this as if someone wants to start getting into the active side of multifamily investing. Sure. So their first step is going to be to narrow down markets that you like. And I always like to start with markets that you know, or have some connection to that are thriving. There's strong job growth, there's strong indicators, the market will continue to thrive. Uh, they're in great locations, locations that you want to own assets in a downturn. You're always thinking about the worst case scenario, right? Because when money's free flowing, then it's great; no one cares. But mm-hmm. when it, what happens when that stops? So I would say, first, you narrow down your markets. You're not going to be able to be really great in fifty different markets coming off the bat. You need to start with one, maybe two, possibly three that you feel comfortable with, that you know that you're willing to travel to, and you want to start making broker relationships there. You want to start really understanding the market. Why do you like this area? Why don't you like this area? Why do you like one zip code versus another? Where is it in relation to all the job markets? Who lives in those markets? Why do they stay there? What forces them to go to another property? So those are all intricacies of the market, the local market that you want to hone in on. And the more information you have, the better. So we start by learning the market. We then go and we create and foster these broker relationships, a lot of times it takes several, several points of contact, several offers, several deals closing or a reputation or track record to be able to get in front of the right brokers. Because a lot of markets are 60 or 70% controlled by one or two different brokers. And so Mm -hmm. you want to know those brokers and you want them to know you. The secret is there is a kiss of death. And the kiss of death is making an offer and having it accepted and then not being able to close the deal because of funding Mm. or something that you made a mistake on. So once you make an offer, if it is accepted, you better close that deal (laughs) because if you don't close one deal, it will go through all of the brokers, all the sellers in the area will know and you won't be able to get any other great assets. And uh-huh. that's
0: kind of what I was chatting on like just a second ago was like the industry is still, mm-hmm. I think, small and really tight knit in, <laughs> in real estate. Right. And I just yeah. I see this just from our family with developers and I just, I understand how small yep. that really is, that even though the finance field is very vast and you could screw someone and no one else knows, even the guy that just <laughs> walks in right behind you has no idea. No idea. Yep. It spreads like it, you know it's high school and, and it
2: goes everywhere
0: <laughs> if something bad goes wrong in, in real estate.
2: Yeah, we're like mean girls over here. We'll, we will all talk about it. That's
1: how it works. Uh,
2: No, but I mean, yeah, and you do, your reputation is everything. And so even for us, we are very, very careful. If we take on an asset, we know we're closing it. Come hell or high water, it's getting closed.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Then that is absolutely the kiss of death. And everybody starts hearing about it. You're absolutely right. It's not just the brokers, lenders will learn about it. Other investors will learn about it. Syndicators, like everyone will start hearing about it. So and deals do fall out of contract. It wouldn't be unusual for a deal to fall out of contract, but it better not be because of something that you messed up or that you could have prevented. Yeah, so. you didn't
0: have your financing in order or you in ran order. numbers incorrectly and you know you made a mm-hmm. horrible offer based on that. I mean, there's yeah. a number of things, right? But if you come down and you start to do soils and you look like, oh man, it's, there was toxic waste here. Like, yeah, yeah you're not going to close. Just, I mean, that wasn't disclosed. Or,
2: so we carve yeah. out certain things like if there's something structural, we just can't see, we might not, it might not even affect closing. It may just affect where the purchase price of the asset is. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's different ways to work around it, but you, if you're not closing cause you didn't get your funding in place or you didn't have your stuff together, then you're in trouble. <laughs> so I would say, so the next step is, you know, you meet your brokers, you, maybe you get some deals that you like. So let's say we see a deal. We like one, two, three main street, right? Mm-hmm. So we look at one, two, three main street and we say, okay, it, the first thing that I do is, this is how it works within our team. Is, so the first thing I do is I look at it and I say, okay, does this meet all of these five high-level metrics? Check, 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 check. If it does, then I take that information from the T12, rent roll, OM, everything, and I put it into a very high-level underwriting spreadsheet that my partner, Spawn has so graciously supplied me with all of the formulas. So for me, it's easy. I just put number, 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 and I transfer everything over. If the numbers still look good and it still meets like kind of our metric of what I think our investors at that moment, are expecting or looking for because I interact with our investors frequently, so mm-hmm. I have a really strong idea of what the, what they're looking for, what their tolerance is, what they want to see. So if I see that and I say, okay, yeah, you know what, this meets everything. I think this deal is going to work. I then send it on to Sapan, who is our numbers guy. I mean, you heard him talking about numbers earlier, so you know he's like a huge nerd with a spreadsheet. And so, no offense, he... <laughs> no, 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 no. I totally mean it. He knows it too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those guys too. Don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> oh, great! There's two of you on this call. Well, good. And we need the world needs people like you because there are people like me that will not do spreadsheets to that extent. <laughs> you, you know, That's he'll funny. call me sometimes at like two in the morning and be like. Hey, and I'm like, hey, is something wrong? Is like our unit on fire? What's going on? He's like, no, I just, you know, I got into the spreadsheet, and I'm really excited. I'm like, it is two o'clock in the morning. Call me at six (laughs) a.m. Yes, call me at six a.m. He's like, no, I'm just really excited about the numbers. I'm like, well, stop. Uh (laughs)
0: Or maybe the baby was keeping him up, and that was. I
2: know, right? That is
3: usually the case. That's what it was.
0: He (laughs) wants you to to go through the pain of of it,
3: right?
2: I know. Well, to, and to be fair, he's two hours behind me. He's in, over in LA. I'm in Dallas. And so, I get it. It's midnight for him. But I'm like an old lady, I sleep at like nine o'clock and I wake up at like six. So I like the early hours. The beauty like, sleep. call me at the after. party. Yeah. Call me at the after party. Don't call me before. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. So basically he will go through it and he'll really dive deep into the numbers and uh, to a level that I have no desire to ever really look at, but I end up having to, because once he's done, if it passes that green light, he sends it back to myself and then we have two other partners, uh, Pooja Talati and Neil Dandona. So Pooja is our marketing guru. She, everything pretty you see from us, it's all her. So she will take the property. If, if it looks like something we want to offer on either her, or I will put it, put together what's called an LOI and we will send that to the broker. And that's usually our first offer. Once that gets accepted into what's called a best and final round, so it's kind of like a bidding process, you have to try to get into the next round. And if you get into the next round, then sometimes they'll do a third or fourth round depending on the offers coming in. If they don't, then usually they'll just choose an offer right after best and final. So it's essentially a way for a seller to get the most money and make us all come up and put our best foot forward. So either her or I will prepare that. We'll send it out. We'll communicate with the broker, let them know, hey, this is what we came in at. Either we're firm here and this is what our best and final is going to be. Or, hey, we have some negotiate, room for negotiation. We just need to tighten up our CapEx budget after our property manager walks the property. At that point, usually by that point, one of the four partners have walked the property and seen it in person. If we haven't, then in between the initial offer and the best and final round is when one of us will fly out or head down and do a tour of the property physically just to get a good idea of what we're looking at because there's certain things a broker can never tell you and there's certain things that they're just simply not going to tell you because they won't think it's relevant but it's relevant to your business plan so you always want to see it physically at that point and they
0: have a conflict of interest too, somewhat, right they want to close the sale because they get a pretty nice payday when it when that happens so
2: yeah and they typically represent the seller so absolutely i mean but i will say the brokers that are really great and especially the ones we work with they will tell you, okay, there's you know maybe three hundred dollars or $400,000 in roofing costs because they want you to underwrite it as accurately as possible because otherwise there's a higher chance it falls out in escrow. So I will say the good brokers are usually pretty in tune with what deferred maintenance and CapEx looks like, but mm-hmm. they won't always be able to tell you that okay, the vinyl tile that you have is really ugly and we have to replace it, even though it's in great condition.
0: (laughs) Well, and and that's the expertise that they just don't have. And that's okay, right? So. I'm a glass half full guy. So I, I always think, you know, people do the right thing. So maybe they're doing the right thing.
2: They just don't know. No, exactly. All of it. And they don't know what's in your business model, right? They don't know whether you're thinking about increasing trash service or putting up carport. Like they don't know what's in our business model. So we, sometimes we have to go and we'll see and we'll say, oh, wait, we can't put carports over here. But look, we can do this over here instead. So that's why it's important to walk the properties. Once we walk it, let's say we get into best and final, we're awarded the property. Before we even get to best and final, our underwriters on the financing side are already looking at the property alongside of us. They're telling us, yes, we like the deal. No, we don't. So that going into best and final, we already have a lender who is pretty confident in what the deal structure will look like on the debt side.
3: They're in tune with our our business strategy. I mean, we we have it down to okay, let's say we have a CapEx budget and we're doing deploying it over, you know, whatever that period of time is. It could be up to 24 months, 30 months, or sometimes, you know, 12, 18 months. You know, one of the first things we like to do is look at the curb appeal if it's something that we're going to go in and renovate the interior units. Um, So we'll underwrite it where we're doing our pro forma year one, a little bit heavier on the curb appeal side, uh, because that's what's going to drive. Uh, some of those newer tenants towards the property first. So, you know we'll look at the marketing. Is it understated? Do we need to add more to the marketing budget relative to the previous uh, seller or owner? Uh, so, we really go through like what their previous T12 expenses are. We also take that, um, you know, without getting really into underwriting, I'll look at the T3s, I'll see what kind of concessions are the numbers are artificially pumped up. You know, is there a lot of deferred maintenance? Uh, why is there deferred maintenance? Uh, so those are just some of the things that we, we really do look at as we tighten up those numbers, uh, kind of going into the acquisition. And, of course, post-acquisition, we've got a laundry list, uh, checklist yeah. of things that just need to be, be done, like checked off, almost like when you're moving into a new house, uh, you know, change of mailing address and things like that. So there's a, there's a laundry list uh, for the next several months. We're pretty busy uh, just getting all of that running and moving and put together as well. So you
0: yeah. know, and you mentioned the after acquisition, so you know mm-hmm. could you just give a you know a couple of examples of what that laundry list might look like what what hits on that list once you've acquired the property?
2: For me, what I personally kind of handle alongside either Neil or Pooja is we actually start running with getting our marketing package together. So Puja will put together our offering memorandum. Uh, Neil and I will usually strategize on what we're going to do as far as a conference call, just walking through our business plan so that investors or other people that are involved in the deal in a significant way can kind of hear our thought process. A lot of times, either to any any two, three, or four of the partners will get on a conference call. We'll just record us talking about the property, just in a very candid conversation. Why do we like this? Why don't we like this? Is there a risk here? Is there not a risk here? What do we want to do with this? Where do we think this property is going? And we'll just talk and we'll all give our opinions. And I think it's interesting too, because a lot of times there's four of us, right? So a lot of times my view on something is completely different than one of my partners. For example, Neil and I, we actually toured a property together because he's based out of Dallas as well. We toured two properties together and we went, we saw them, we talked about it. We left, we got on our team call on Tuesday and Pooja and Sapan asked, okay, so which properties do you guys like better? We both had exact opposite (laughs) answers about which property, if we could only go after one of them, which one we go after. So it's kind of nice because it's an internal checkpoint for us where we start saying, okay, but this is why I like this. And then someone says, but no, you're forgetting about this risk. And so we go back and forth. So we start getting a conference call together where we talk about our business plans so that people know that we've really thought this through. This isn't something we did on a whim because it's, you know, a Thursday we decided to buy this. So we get that conference call going. We immediately start the lawyers on all paperwork and on the investor side and on the purchase agreement side. Once that's in place, we start inspections, we start getting our contractors through, we contract with property management, Um, lending is obviously running at 100 miles a minute all the time, but we mostly have an idea of what we're looking at going into the deal, so it's not usually a surprise coming out on the other side of being awarded the deal.
3: Right. Yeah. I'll give me example. It could be made service agreements. It could be carpet agreements. It could be turnkey agreements. Painting agreements. You know, we may have a uh, mm-hmm. guide and rental agency agreements. And you know, depending on what we're doing with laundry, we may have that. We may have vending machines, pest control, sweeping service. So there's a lot of different things. If there's a pool, we'll have pool service. Uh, just kind of name some of the contractor services. And if we're talking about uh, just other legal docs, it'd be getting those things in order, like the utility letters, zoning letters. You know, seller certification. So there's a lot that goes on yes. that. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then of course, the studies We want to make sure like we've, we've done a lot of this during the due diligence, but just having that stuff allocated properly, like the structural inspection, drainage inspection reports. Um, generally, we don't do soil tests and we're looking unless we're looking to do some type of add on. We had a deal where we we're looking at that where that was perceived as a risk. Uh, didn't work in our favor, though. It, it had the potential to do so. And then we just go through the inventory that we've, you know, previously done due diligence. We go through that again. So there will be like clubhouse inventory, our maintenance shop, the tools and things like that that should be there. So just kind of running a lot of stuff off the top of my head. I just want to give everyone an idea because a lot of folks don't really know what goes into that checklist.
2: Lease audit, that takes forever.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, and and you look at it and it's like so I primarily invest personally in, in our family. Like we do a lot of single family. And Mm -hmm. every time we acquire a deal, like I have a laundry list of like 50 things that I do and Mm -hmm. that's one door, (laughs) right? Yeah. So when you have 150 doors, it's totally different. There's a lot bigger thing. And I, it's funny, you mentioned soils and I know I mentioned it earlier in the show. Um, That's like a more of a development thing. You guys are more buying and you don't really add on as much. You're, you're kind of looking at what's existing. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just funny how even inside (laughs) real estate, things are different there. So Vina, you mentioned management of the property, right? Yeah. So, who manages typically and how does that work and how how do you guys kind of structure that or at least speak from a high level on on how that works?
2: Yeah. So, property management. So, this is actually the reason that we love multifamily compared to single-family homes, right? And both of us have single family home portfolio. So we've done that already. But I would say the biggest blessing for me, and I use professional management on all of my single family properties, but I still have to respond with, okay, this tenant broke the toilet. Like I just had a tenant recently say that they tried to replace the toilet themselves and totally messed it up. And so now property management calls me asking me for not to exceed amount to send their person out. And I have to be like, okay, well, make sure you're billing back the tenant for this because this is their fault. Mm -hmm. But I still have to oversee property management. In the case of multifamily, it's very different because you have a leaky faucet. They're not going to call me to find out if I approve, you know, a $100 fix and whatnot. It goes into our budget. We can see the numbers and we review The budget and the financials with property management often. And as we see certain trends, if we start seeing an increase in one expense, we say, Hey, wait a second, what's happening here? And we try to find out what those outliers are. Was there a one time expense or is this something that's ongoing? Is this mismanagement of the property? So we hire professionals and we're actually really big believers in that we pay professionals who are really good at what they do to tell us what we should be doing so Mm -hmm. you know financial advisors I I know you mentioned DIYing it but we pay financial advisors very well because they do this all day long and you think of it like a specialist right you don't want to send your spouse to an anesthesiologist to diagnose a rash on your leg like it's just they that's not what they do but you do want them when you're Getting surgery and you're having anesthesia done because that's all they do. So, we believe in paying for good expert advice, and property management is absolutely the same way. You want to find someone who's experienced in that market, who understands the demographics, who can. Notice and correct a problem as quickly as possible, and who also has enough employees to keep it staffed is one of
3: the big things. I want to add this: we we don't just view it as we get different property management for different properties. Uh, we we're working with them even on on deals that we don't even have under contract yeah. because you know we're looking at numbers. We're talking all the time. Hey, this. we just sold this or we just moved into this one and here's where we're at. Here's what we're seeing here. What are you guys seeing? And and it really helps us shape up underwriting, shape our model, see what we're looking to, you know, where we want to be in that sub market. Do we want to still be there or not? Because they've got vast data set of property management companies got 15, 20,000 units. That's a lot of real time data. It's like myself who loves spreadsheets. Guess what? That's a (laughs) lot of information for me. Versus just using comps that we may have pulled off the CoStar or, or you know, just comps in general that you find on Google, um, you know, all these things have value. It's just I look at the big picture as a whole and how can all of this together you know, really be packaged into something that's meaningful for us.
2: Absolutely. And I think property management can, having a good manager can be a world of difference on what you're looking at. And so, you know, it's very relational for us. We use the same property managers over and over across properties when we can. And as we enter into new markets, if they don't have a presence there, then we look for the best of the best in those markets and work with them.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you're entrusting them to help manage right a multi-million dollar investment you want to make sure that you're choosing the right thing you do a lot of due diligence and because it's not just Mm -hmm. your money right it's investor money it's bank money your reputation you gotta you gotta make sure you're doing the right thing so a
2: lot of fiduciary duty there
0: (laughs) absolutely you know we're approaching the one hour mark here and there's so many other things that i wanted to kind of jump into but one of the things that I'm going to put inside the group, the financial residency group is mm-hmm. a sample deal that you guys just kind of mocked up. And again, it's all fake numbers, all sample yeah. data. It's a couple slides that I will put in for the group. So if you're for those listening, if you're not a part of the group, come join us at financial residency and you guys will have right. access to this. But if you could just for like two minutes, just let people know kind of what they're looking at with the sample deal
3: that you guys have
0: kind of provided.
3: I'm going to let Vina walk you through that. I'll fill in the color uh, with it. I think you had
2: mocked that up with Pooja. Um, yeah, actually, Pooja put this all together. So when you guys oh, see it, you'll know what I mean about her making everything pretty. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it is <laughs> um, pretty. I love it.
2: Um, she's fantastic. She comes from Hershey's. Hershey Kisses were her her product, So she's very well versed in marketing and it definitely shows. Um,
0: yeah, you guys have some nice stuff. So if you don't mind for two minutes, just kind of jump in and tell us just a little bit about what we're seeing in these three slides.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the first is, and again, this is a sample deal. It's not a real deal. You're not being offered anything. It's just a sample. It's just education Uh,
0: material. Yeah,
2: educational material, just so you can see kind of what we look at. So financial summary is the first page that you'll see here. Basically, it talks about what this looks like from the investor side. We go through the cap rate on this. It's 5.1%. I would say that's pretty, yeah, between 5 and 6% is really what you're seeing in the market these days. The reversion cap is at 56 So we added half a percent to that expense Just ratio. Plus,
3: oh, real quick. Uh, so, I mean, maybe before until today, right, folks were saying, hey, if the, if the cap's say 5.1%, I'm going to underwrite this with this exit of maybe 4.8, 4.75, because we kept seeing cap compression. Now we're doing quite the opposite. And so that's what the reversion cap is. What's the value uh, on the sale that we're seeing? And and so what this means at a higher cap, it's just like a bond. It's inverse relationship. Uh, As the caps go up, the value comes down there's a whole different discussion around uh, what do you do you know knowing that the value is coming down there are a lot of things you can do to to mitigate some of that or ride it out through that and then as we talked about there's other benefits like tax shelters to do that but uh, going back to expense ratio uh, typically we see somewhere in that 45 to 55 typically higher in the 50 55 range is what we'll normally see on a t12 uh, expense ratio in this case a little bit lower uh, which is telling you that it might be managed a lot better, a high streamline may not even be something we potentially could see or at least strive towards
2: that service coverage ratio. Basically, can we cover the debt comfortably? I'd say most banks look for. I mean, what's the lowest you've seen spun like one, one, 1.1, 1.1,
3: ish. Yeah. I mean, you're not really seeing that as much. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're a lot of the deals we're looking at. Again, we like to be conservative. We're typically getting it around the high ones like one eight one nine um but i think the minimum is usually one two five uh is what you kind of need and you'll probably see that going up or potentially increasing as well
0: Uh yeah so so listeners are probably hearing that term for the first time so can you just tell them what the debt service you know is and what you're kind of referencing with the the ratio there
2: Basically, what you're looking at is for every dollar of income you have, how much of the debt service can you cover? So, if I have ten dollars coming in, how much of that can I cover in terms of what the outstanding debt is? So, for example, on this sample, we have one point four. So, for every dollar of debt we have, we have a dollar forty coming in.
0: Makes perfect sense. And yep. and then you know, I Avina, mean, I don't, I hate skipping forward on some stuff, but if we yeah, could just look at the can... capex budget that you guys kind of have here and just kind of talk through, I know we've kind of really talked about a lot of this inside of the call today, but you know, maybe just go just a little bit further into Mm -hmm. the CapEx so they can understand that a little bit better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the CapEx budget, I mean, it's broken down into kind of what we're seeing as a total per unit. Now we take a lot of these numbers from real time data because we have so many units, we know what it. Typically is going to cost, mm-hmm. for example, to put vinyl flooring in the Dallas market. We already know those numbers because we've done it across so many units. So a lot of this will be real data for us, not projected data. But you know, some of the things that we're seeing now, the USB outlets in the kitchen, backsplashes. I didn't know that backsplashes were so coveted until I started putting them in. But people love them, so we yeah. spent some money there. And it's just you know, changing the changing tastes of the area. So before you know grounds and woods were really in. And now it's all about the quartz, the clean lines, the grays. So, you know, those are things that we look at. We look at what the market calls for. And we, I mean, the CapEx budgets. is Fairly self-explanatory. For example, carports. We're going to put in sixty-eight on this at a cost of about one hundred and eighteen thousand. That, on the other end, you'll see in our pro forma where we anticipate that bringing us in revenue. So, is it ten dollars a month, twenty dollars a month? What does that look like, and how does that
3: affect the NOI?
2: Yeah. yeah. And
3: then, like you take like for example, I'm assuming you said sixty-seven hundred number uh, total interior rehab uh, just. <laughs> we know that in dallas that's going to get you a different rent bump all else being equal versus a place like in oklahoma and, and we're seeing some of those numbers sh- change but it gives us like because we we're in different markets we have a, a very good idea of what a per unit uh, capex will get us in different markets and you know is that worth it or is that something we don't want to look at and so that ties into even before we get into a deal when we're just kind of looking at a very high level of okay this is what it's trading for here's the whisper price uh, this is roughly what we think it'll take uh, in terms of value add immediately. It's just like, okay, we're going to pass on this deal and move on to the next. And we, we look at literally you know, hundreds of deals and you know we offer on very few. So just to kind of give you an idea that there's more to that number uh, on that CapEx than just we're seeing, okay, well, do we want to put vinyl
0: plankton?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's
0: a lot more to this, right? But yeah. this is a good sample for everyone to see because when you talk about CapEx and even if you're talking about, well, this is what we're doing inside, it's hard to really visualize it and that's why i was saying let's let's get a sample you know sample data everything is fake inside this but yeah. you get at least a good overview of like oh okay you know you're talking about like shower heads and lighting and fixtures mm-hmm. and you know i just think it's it's a good thing for people to see and so i'll definitely make sure i put it inside of uh the financial residency group so everyone can take a look sure. at it and um at least have something tangible as they're kind of going through uh, the show and trying to understand you know Absolutely. what we've been kind of discussing. So the last it's little bit here
2: explanatory, so it should be easy to follow through.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It's just it's always something. You know, some people are audio, some people are visual learners. So yeah. it's always <laughs> nice to have some other outlets. <laughs> That's funny, uh, yep. So you know, I want to end the show with you guys just telling a little bit about what you guys are doing at Enzo, and I'll just maybe kind of wrap it up here. You know, in the last few minutes of the show,
2: Enzo Multifamily is probably gearing up, hopefully to do a bigger year this year than we did last year. Last year, we did just over a hundred million in assets, multifamily assets specifically, but we're looking to increase that this year, and we're actually getting prepped to go into this downturn. I know we keep talking like doom and gloom going into the downturn, but we are internally preparing for that so that we can take advantage of you know any downturn that is there because then we can acquire more assets. Basically, I would say for all four of us as partners, we are really into the educational aspect right now. We love just talking about what we do. So we have been really involved in these Facebook groups, much like your group, Ryan, which we have loved because it gives us access to people who are also as excited and as passionate about what we're doing. So we take a lot of time to help people underwrite their own deals. Uh, Anytime someone's looking to invest into a deal that's operated by somebody else, I always tell them, you know, send it over to me. I'm happy that take a look at it and give you some feedback or some good questions to ask for our stuff. We do send out educational materials in newsletters. Luckily it's only like once a month. You're not going to get 17 emails from us a day. Uh, and our newsletter is on our website at Enzo multifamily.com. But I, I do want to say too, for you, Ryan, I think the space that you're providing for this is so important. And I know it's, you know, physician centered and as somebody who's married to a physician, I could say that if I wasn't involved in investing or just the financial world in general, my degrees in finance, if I wasn't involved in it, I don't think I would know where to start. And I think the feedback that I get from so many of my friends that are in the group is it's just a wealth of knowledge and it's a safe space to ask questions. My sister Priya, she's married to a cardiology fellow and she's always calling me and she's like, Hey, did you see that one post in the group? What does this mean? And you know, she's just, she loves talking about it now and she would have never approached any of these questions. So I think education is the big thing that I see a lot of the quote unquote experts or people that are really great in their respective fields. I see them going after that and just really helping educate others. And it's very collaborative. And that's one thing I love about social media and where we are these days is information can travel so quickly and it's so easy to find answers to what you need. So I'd say this year is about education for us. We've also picked up a lot of philanthropic projects. Our most recent is we did a grant match for Safe Mothers, Safe Babies. It's a nonprofit that helps labor and delivery out of Uganda. So we did a matching grant on that last month and, you know, raised enough to help babies through the whole year. And so things like that are really kind of what we're into this year alongside multifamily.
0: That's awesome. Well, that's neat. And you know, I appreciate the feedback and, you know, that's, that's what this is all about, right? It's just giving mm-hmm. back, educating, going mm-hmm. through the whole process. You know, I saw the stuff that our friends, because pretty much almost all of our friends are physicians and yeah. you know, what my wife was being pitched And, you know, I just, it's frustrating to me and I love the technology age that we're in right now because Mm -hmm. we can sit here and all talk to each other, record a conversation and really help people understand something, whether it's multifamily or insurance or banking and budgeting and all this stuff, which was previously, you know, kind of held back when Google Mm -hmm. didn't exist and the internet wasn't around is like, oh, I'm selling this black box. And (laughs) if you don't do this now, your family's doomed. Or if you don't (laughs) come with me, you know, you're you're always going to be poor or, you know, whatever else (laughs) they were pitched. So, yeah. So I love that you guys are putting out content. I've I've subscribed to your newsletter because I'm always interested in what other... Friends are doing, um, and and how uh, we can all collaborate. So I'm excited to have you guys on the show. Thank you so much for being here, both of you, and and yeah. it was a pleasure.
2: Thank you for having us. Love talking real estate. So any questions you have or anything else you want to talk, you just call us up. We're happy to do it again.
0: Awesome. Well, in and everyone, Vina is in the group, so you can always tag her yes. um, and ask any real estate question. If it's single family, I know that you're probably just going to retag me, but it's okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sending them right back to you.
0: <laughs> I know. I know so you don't like it, but it's all good Nothing
2: nice to say anymore about my single family portfolio.
0: <laughs> it's all good. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. All
0: right. Well, that was an awesome show. And I know we got a little bit into the weeds and some of the more complicated stuff. And I know we typically don't do that on the show. But, you know, this shows you the amount of knowledge and expertise that you need to kind of play in this arena. If you're thinking about multifamily investing, you need to do a lot of research along with everything though. Honestly, every type of investment you're going to do, do research, understand what the pros and cons are and what the risk is in order to get it. You need to be able to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it before you make any investment. And again, of course, talk to your CPA and attorney. Your fee-only financial planner. Please be fee-only before you make anything. But Sopin and Vina, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you guys and kind of nerding out on real estate. You know, even the hour and a half we talked after recording this, which was so much fun. So hope you guys took a lot out of this and have a great week and talk to you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode is ended, but your financial residency continues online. Online, Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.